Hey, this is Pastor Dave from Cross Point Church. Thank you so much for checking out our podcast today. We are a church on the move to redeem people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can learn more about us by checking out our website at crosspointwestdallas.com. You can watch one of our services by going to our YouTube channel at Cross Point Church West Dallas. More than anything, we'd love to meet you in person and for you to be our guest on a Sunday morning at 10 a.m. We meet every Sunday at 11,000 West Oklahoma Avenue in the great city of West Dallas. We would love to see you soon. And may God use this message to give power and grace to you today. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for Jesus Christ who gave his life as a ransom for us that we might be forgiven for all of our sins and that we might be full of your joy through the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would give us understanding today of your word, that you would give us joy in our hearts, that you would give us uh, a new appreciation for everything that God has accomplished for us in Jesus. Thank you so much, God, for your faithfulness to us. And God, may we leave here today uh, closer to you and more like Jesus. And we pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning, everyone. My name is Dave. I'm one of your pastors here at Cross Point Church. Good morning to those of you who are watching online. In case you're wondering what my shirt says, it says, be careful or you'll end up in my sermon. This was a... <laughs> This was a gift from my kids on Father's Day. I think it's their way of getting back at me for all the times that I have exploited uh, them in my sermons. And so I promised them I would wear it one Sunday. So here we go. It's probably the last Sunday I'm wearing it, guys, just so you know. <laughs> Today, uh, the title of today's message is The Church Has Ups and Downs. As if you've lived long enough, you, you know that life is full of ups and downs. And today we're going to talk about the fact that the church has ups and downs. There's this phrase that we sometimes throw around uh, that says, the honeymoon is over. You guys familiar with that phrase? The honeymoon is over. And what, what that phrase means is that... Um, We've gotten past the stage where everything's great, and now reality has sunk in. Isn't that how, kind of what that means? My wife and I dated for three and a half years before we got married, and we got to know each other really well during that time. We loved spending time together. We, um, we just loved being together. We were fiercely attracted to each other. Uh, now we're just attracted to each other, but then we were fiercely attracted to each other. We were excited about our future together. We, uh, we did get into the occasional argument, and I, I, I would disappoint Vicky from time to time. And, but things were, things really, for those three and a half years, they, for the most part, were going up and up and up and up. Uh, however, uh, towards the latter part of our dating relationship, it became clear to me that I needed to tell Vicky some things about my past that she didn't know, some things about me that she didn't know. And those were some very difficult conversations. In fact, they were extremely painful for her. And, and they were painful for me as well to tell her about things from my past. That, and and the, in fact, those things were so serious that 
she had to reckon, you know, with, with my past. And she had to decide, do I want to keep going with Dave? That's how serious these things were. And so for us, the honeymoon was over before it even started in some ways. Like she, once we got past that, we felt our relationship was rock solid. And then we got married and went on our honeymoon and things just kept getting better. But for some couples, it doesn't happen that way. For some couples, they date for a while and things are just great. And they never have to go through anything hard. And then they go on their, uh, they get married, they go on their honeymoon. And it's only after their honeymoon that they find out who they really married. You know what I mean? And that's why we say, the honeymoon is over. That's why we say the honeymoon is over. Well, today, we're going to find out that the honeymoon is over for the church. The honeymoon phase is over for the church. Uh, You know, since the very beginning of the book of Acts, things have been only good for followers of Jesus. Uh, When Jesus ascended back to heaven... Uh, things were great, and the, this, this, the church was going really, really well, and even though they didn't, at first they didn't really know what to do, so they, but they stuck together, they prayed, they waited, and then the day of Pentecost came, and the Holy Spirit descended on the 120 disciples, they were all filled with the Spirit, full of the joy and, and power of the Holy Spirit, started speaking in tongues, and the church exploded, 3,000 people were added to the church in one day, they were all baptized, And we read that everyone was of one heart and mind. They were learning together, worshiping together, eating together. They loved each other, taking care of each other. Things could not have been better for the church. One day, Peter and John, they encountered a man who had never walked in his life. And they heal him. And he's like jumping for joy, praising God in the temple, singing and dancing Thousands more believed the good news of Jesus, and the church grew to more than 10,000 people. The powers that be didn't like that very much. They didn't like this power. They didn't like being the threat of this Jesus and the message of resurrection. So they have Peter and John arrested, and they questioned them. And they don't know what to do. They don't know what to do. They can't. They can't deny the fact that a miracle has happened. Everyone in Jerusalem knows about it. Peter and John, for the moment, are heroes. And they feel like if we arrest these men, there's going to be a riot. So they let them go. That's what we've been looking at the last couple of weeks. After they let Peter and John go, they go back to the church and tell them what happened. And everyone is so excited. Everyone's pumped. It's like nobody can stop us. They're full of the joy and confidence of God because everything God was doing around them and this movement that they got to be a part of was unstoppable. Not even the most powerful men in Jerusalem had an answer for what God was doing through the church. So they pray this powerful prayer together at the end of Acts chapter 4, and I'm going to paraphrase it for you. This is basically what they said. God, nobody can stop you. You said this was all going to happen. In fact, you brought all of this to pass. You decided long ago that Jesus would have enemies and that they would crucify him. But that was all part of your, your plan. Now, God, you've heard their threats. Give us boldness to keep telling people everywhere about Jesus. Keep doing the impossible through the name of Jesus. Now, it's worth noting that what they did not pray. They did not pray and ask God to keep them safe. 
They did not ask God to protect them from further threats or harassment or suffering. They did not ask God to give them an easier life together. What they did was they praised God for his sovereignty. They, pr- they prayed the scriptures. They, they pray and quote Psalm chapter 2. They asked God for more boldness and more power. And as soon as they said amen, the house they were gathered in shook to the foundations. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. It was like Pentecost all over again. It was a visible, palpable experience of the presence of God that no one could deny. It must have been an incredible experience. And right after this, at the very end of Acts chapter 4, Luke describes for us in a kind of summary statement the condition of the church. And I want to read this for you at the end of Luke chapter 4, uh, sorry, Acts chapter 4. Verse 32, all the believers were united in heart and mind. And they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them, because those who owned land or, land or houses would sell them and bring money to the apostles to give to those in need. Now here is a very similar summary statement to what we read at the end of Acts chapter 2. And, and again, Things could not have been better for the church. Things just keep getting better. People are being healed. Everyone is experiencing God's blessing. People are turning to Christ for salvation every single day. The church keeps growing. They're all unified. Nobody's complaining about the sermon or the worship music. Uh, Nobody's questioning the authority of the apostles. No one's grumbling because they feel unappreciated or undervalued. There's no politics in the church. That must have been amazing. <laughs> no one is, is uh, there, there's no racial tension. There are no social cliques. Nobody has any physical needs. Everyone is valued and taken care of in every way. Things are so good, it's like nobody can bring us down. There was this shared sense that Jesus was coming back any day and heaven was coming to earth and nobody can stop it. And they were right about one thing. There is no person or power outside the church that can stop the church. There is no power in hell that can stop the church, according to Jesus. The powers that be can make threats, they can arrest us, they can hurt us, and they can even kill us, but that's only going to make us stronger. They were right about all of that. But what they did not know yet was this. The biggest threat to the church does not come from outside the church. It comes from inside the church. The biggest threat to the strength and health of the church always comes from inside the church. And we're about to read a chilling text that has troubled New Testament scholars and pastors and Christians ever since it was written. And it's so shocking what happens in Acts chapter 5 that we don't even know what to do with it. You could go to church your whole life and never hear this passage preached because nobody wants to preach this. In fact, this last week, I went back and forth and back and forth. On other, I mean, there were other passages that would have been much more fun to preach than this one. But this text is in the Bible because God wants it to be preached. So we're going to read it together. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And here's what we read. Here's here's why we say the honeymoon's over. Acts chapter 5. But there was a certain man named Ananias who, with his wife Sapphira, sold some property. He brought part of the money to the apostles 
claiming it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell as you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. Then some young men got up, wrapped him in a sheet, and took him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, was this the price you and your husband received for your land? Yes, she replied, this, that was the price. And Peter said, how could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who buried your husband are just outside the door and they will carry you out too. Instantly she fell to the floor and died. When the young men came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard what had happened. This is the word of God. I wonder, I was wondering this last week as I was looking at this passage again, how many of you have never heard this passage before? How many of you didn't know that this was even in the Bible? And then I wondered how many of us wish it wasn't in the Bible? You know, because if we're being honest, we would have rather that Ananias came in, confessed his sin, and gave the rest of the money to the church right then and there. Right? We would, we would rather that Sapphira came in later brokenhearted over what her husband did and confessed it and been ready to give the rest of the money like they said they were going to do and then everything was okay. We would have rather this couple been disciplined by the church and then been restored. Instead, the swift, brutal judgment of God immediately claims the lives of this husband and wife and the church is gripped by fear. Why would God do that? Imagine... Imagine this. Imagine that your church is in the middle of a capital campaign raising money for something huge. Like they're going to start a new campus or they're going to build, you know, add on to the building or they're going to, they're going to begin funneling, you know, thousands or, or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars into the community to see more and more people come to faith in Jesus. And it so happens you and your wife own some property up north and God puts it on both of your hearts to sell that property and give it to the church. So you go to your pastor and you say, God has put this on our hearts and we want to sell this property and give the full amount to the church. And your pastor is just blown away and you know, grateful for your generosity. And then you tell your pastor the property is worth about $250,000. And he's just amazed that you would even think about doing this. Um, and giving this gracious gift. And then, and then you find out later you underestimated the value of the property and you end up getting 300000 for the property. But you decide you could really use that extra 50000 So you write out your check for 250000 You give it to your pastor. He thanks you again for this incredible donation. Everyone's praising God for this. And, and the question is, would you tell him about the other 50000 is that very different than, than what we just read? I mean, one thing that should trouble us when we read this passage is that we're not dead. Isn't that true? Th this could be any one of us. 
But for reasons I cannot fully explain, God lets us get away with things all the time. Swift and final judgment is not the normal response of God to liars in the church. And I am so thankful for that. Because I would be dead. It's not unheard of, but it's unusual. And we don't read about anything like this happening again in the early church. And I'm thankful for that too. The vast majority of the time, people in the church get away with doing bad things. Lacking integrity, lying, stealing, cheating, slandering, gossiping about their brothers and sisters, pretending to be someone they're not. And God's grace covers it all. But there must be repentance. God's grace and God's kindness should lead us to repentance. The church has always had good and bad people in it. And we don't know if this husband and wife were true disciples of Jesus. We don't know if Ananias and Sapphira are in heaven. But we do know that Christians are capable of making really bad choices. And most of the time they don't die on the spot. God is extremely patient. God wants all of us to confess and repent and make things right with the people we have wronged. But this is different. This is different. This is something we haven't seen before. This is, by the way, the first sin that we read about in the early church, in this new movement of God. This is the first threat introduced to this new movement of God through the Holy Spirit. Uh, That comes from inside the church. So what is Luke, why does Luke even tell us about this? What what does he want us to see? One thing we've already seen is that this early church, and by the way, in Acts chapter 5, this is the first time that the Greek word for the church is used to describe this new movement. Acts chapter 5, 11 is, is the Greek word ekklesia, which means gathering or assembly. It's the first time we see this word in the book of Acts. And the, this early Christian church, we read eventually, is the new temple of God. That's what the church is. It's the new temple of God. And Paul makes this explicit in his first letter to the Corinthian church. Listen to this in verse 1 Corinthians 3.16. Don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? God will destroy anyone who destroys this temple. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So the church is God's new dwelling place. And what was unique about the temple of God? The temple of God we know is where the God of the universe lived and spoke. Only certain people could approach the temple. It was sacred. It was holy. Only one person, the high priest, could enter uh, the innermost room of the temple, the most holy place, and they could only go in once a year. And before they could go into the temple, they had to go through this extremely elaborate series of cleansing rituals to be considered fit for the presence of God. There was this sense of dangerous holiness surrounding the temple. And here in Acts chapter 5, we see this same sense of dangerous holiness surrounding the community of believers. And it's, I mean, this couple, Peter says, they lied to the Spirit of God. They lied to the church, which is like saying they lied to God. Listen to what New Testament scholar N.T. Wright wrote about this passage If we watch with excited fascination as the early church does wonderful healings, stands up to the bullying authorities, 
makes converts, and lives a life of astonishing property sharing, we may have to face the fact that if you want to be a community which seems to be taking the place of the temple of the living God, you mustn't be surprised if the living God takes you seriously, seriously enough to make it clear that there is no such thing as cheap grace. Okay, what he's saying is you can't speak the name of Jesus and invite the Holy Spirit into your life and your presence and invite and, and, and into your church and experience the power of God changing your life and then live however you want. If you claim to belong to God and to represent God in this world but then live as if your life is your own, there's going to be a reckoning. It may not come right away, but it will come. God is not partial. We, we will be judged based on how we live. And as Paul said in Galatians 6, God is not going to be mocked. We will reap what we sow. If we sow to the flesh, we will, we will reap corruption. We will reap destruction. But if we sow to the Spirit, we will reap life, the life of God. John Stott said simply, falsehood ruins fellowship. And that's a great way to summarize this whole episode in Acts chapter 5. Because at the end of Acts 4, what we have is a beautiful, powerful portrait of intimate fellowship in the church. Where everyone loves, everyone's treating each other like family. Everyone's sharing whatever they have. Everyone loves, everyone's on the same page. Everyone has the same passion. No one's grumbling. No one's hiding. No one's doing their own thing. Everyone is in this together. But in Acts chapter 5, that awesome fellowship is threatened by one couple, and God immediately wipes out the threats. There's no warning. There's no discipline. There's no process laid out for restitution and restoration. There is only a swift hammer of judgment. You know, this might remind some of you of another story in the Bible from the Old Testament book of Joshua where there was another new movement of God. God was moving the people of Israel into the promised land. And the first threat to them was the city of Jericho surrounded by walls. Some of you remember that story where the people of Israel, they, they, they face this enemy and there's no way to get in the walls. So God, you know, they, God tells them to march around the city uh, for seven days and then to march around it seven times and blow the trumpets and then the walls come down and they go in and they seize the city. And God gave them basically one condition, don't take anything. Don't take any silver or gold. Don't take anything for yourself. Destroy it all. And everyone did that except for one person. And his name was Achan. And he took some silver and gold and some other things. He didn't tell any about it, anyone about it. And he buried it all under his tent, under his family's tent. And then Israel went on their way and they're like, man, God really is with us. Who's next? And they go and they, they face the next enemy, which wasn't as formidable of an enemy, but they, they, get, they get wiped out. Not wiped out, but they, they suffer a defeat. And Joshua's like, God, why did this happen? What have I thought you were with us. And God says, Israel has sinned against me. And they eventually find out it was Achan. And in Joshua chapter 7, we learn that Joshua and the elders of, the, of Israel and the, the people of Israel, they take Achan and they take the stuff that he took and they take all, the, all of his belongings, including his sheep and his cattle, his goats, everything. 
They take his sons, his daughters, his wife, his whole family, and they take them down to the valley of Achor, and they stone them all to death, and they burn everything. That's harsh. But God said, you will not experience any more victory until you completely destroy this sin and wipe this whole family out. Why is, why? Like, like why do we read things about, like that happening in the Bible? Why did God do that? And, and here, here is something that we need to remember. Sometimes we need to be reminded how much of a threat sin is to everything good in our lives. And not just how much of a threat sin is to us, but how much of a threat it is, is, is to the lives of the people close to us. Because we are normally, <laughs> we are very quick to minimize sin, especially our own sin. Especially our own sin. Isn't that true? We're very quick to justify it. We're quick to sweep it under the rug. Oh, it's not that bad. We often refuse to confront a brother or sister in Christ when we see sin in their lives because that might make us or them uncomfortable. But sin is a threat to everything good in our lives. It is a threat to our relationship with God. It is a threat to our families. It is a threat to our church. And God will not ignore it. Listen to something R.C. Sproul said. He said, when we understand the character of God, then we begin to understand the radical character of our sin and hopelessness. Helpless sinners can survive only by grace. Our strength is futile in itself. We are spiritually impotent without the assistance of a merciful God. We may dislike giving our attention to God's wrath and justice, but until we incline ourselves to these aspects of God's nature, we will never appreciate what has been wrought for us by grace. You might read this story. You might read story like, you might read Joshua chapter 7, and I would encourage you to read it later today. You might read Acts chapter 5 and come away thinking, that's not fair. It wasn't right of God to react that way. But it would be much better for us to read these stories and come away thinking about how astonishing and shocking the grace of God in Jesus Christ truly is. We should be overwhelmed with gratitude for the cross where the Son of God, Jesus the Nazarene, died to wipe away our sins so that God doesn't kill us on the spot because that's what we deserve. Right? I mean, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is what? It's death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, when Jesus was on the earth, he confronted a lot of people in their sin. But he didn't kill anybody, from what I can remember. Instead, he gave his own body to be killed. In one instance, Jesus was in public and a woman was brought to him who had just been caught in the act of adultery. And the law stated that she should be killed instantly. And even then, Jesus refused to condemn her. Instead, instead he forgave her on the spot for her sins and then he said, go and sin no more. That's the response that we should have to the grace of God. When we understand something of the holiness of God and we understand the gravity of our own sin and we understand the price that was paid by Jesus to set us free, we should hate our sin. 
We should want to resist temptation. So the application today is very simple. Go and sin no more. Isn't that what Jesus said? Confess your sin. Don't hide it. And fear God and be thankful for the cross. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the grace that you have shown us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for your incredible mercy. We thank you, God, that you have brought us together as the church to confess our sins to each other, to find grace in the fellowship of the, of the believers, to bring other believers alongside us to pray for us, that we might for, experience forgiveness in this community, that we might experience freedom from the sins that, that we have struggled with for so long, that we might experience the power of the Holy Spirit. God, we ask that you would protect our church, protect our church from sin, protect our church from deception. God, that you would move through us to reach more and more people with the salvation that you offer through Jesus Christ, and that we would experience your power among us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please rise for the benediction. This morning the benediction comes from 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, next, next week we're going to jump into Acts chapter 6. And we're going to talk about the first leadership crisis that the, ch- the church experienced. But until then, please hear these words and... and uh, Think about this as you leave this morning. And remember that the Heavenly Father to whom you pray has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear of Him during your time here as, a temporary, as temporary residence. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began, but now in these last days he has been revealed for your sake. Through Christ you have come to trust in God and you have placed your faith and hope in God because he raised Christ from the dead and gave him great glory. Amen. Thank you so much for being here today. May you go with the blessings of God. We'll see you again next week. Hey, Pastor Dave, thanks again for listening to this message. We want you to know that what you just heard is a glimpse of what happens on Sunday mornings. But, you know, the church is so much more than what happens on a Sunday mornings. Coming to a service is, is just a slice of who we are and what God is doing in and through us. So we would love to get to know you and let you get to know us. And maybe the best way to do that is come to one of our services, but you can also go to our website and fill out a contact form, and one of our pastors will follow up with you very shortly. Until then, we hope you have a great day, and thanks again for listening.